Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And please rise for the reading of God's Word. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit of his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom... We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. There are so many reasons to lose heart in this world. Just this week. I have felt overwhelming discouragement at moments. Everywhere we look, there are the effects of sin, inside and outside. Inside of us, in other people, inside the church, outside the church. Sin, like poison in a glass, permeates everything, has tainted everything. The past is full of trouble, and the future seems to offer only more of the same. We're weary. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, it seems that the Christian faith is at this time out of season. It is set aside. It is disregarded. Perhaps in certain times past, there were moments in history where it surged and seemed to be prominent and even dominant. But now it seems to be waning and seems to be less important and less influential, and that can be discouraging. Things look bad, and it can be tempting to compromise our faith when the pressure is on. I was discouraged to hear Dr. Ben Carson say this, quote, sometimes you put, you have, you put your Christian values on pause to get the work done. What matters is that the train is going off the cliff and we're taking our eye off of that and we're getting involved in these other issues that can be taken care of later. The Apostle Paul would have said the exact opposite. If our Christian values, that is, if the Word of God doesn't matter when we're going off the cliff, then it doesn't matter at all. And we have... And we have it good 
compared to the Christians that Paul is writing to at Ephesus. At least we have 2,000 years of Christendom to look at. They were upstarts. They were a huge minority. That's an overstatement, really. They were at the bottom of the list of all the minorities. They were openly persecuted, and there was nothing Christian about their culture. And here, the great Apostle Paul, the one we look up to, we think of the, the greatest who wrote so much of the New Testament. Where is he? Is he writing from church headquarters? No, he's writing from prison. Now Paul starts a thought in verse 1, which he will continue in verse 13. I like this pastoral aspect of Paul. I like it partly because it excuses my forays to chase rabbits here and there. Paul starts a thought, and then he thinks of something else, usually very pastoral, and he runs after it, and then he finally makes his way back to it. And that's what he does here. Because he has pastoral concern for this congregation. This is not an academic letter. This is not something he's writing just as a theological treatise, though it is that in the book of Ephesians. But it's a very pastoral letter. He loves these people. He's concerned about these people. And notice what he says, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You see, he doesn't want them to lose heart or be discouraged. In fact, these verses say a lot about Paul, and they say a lot to us. Paul, as an apostle, apostle and a pastor, is going to model for them and for us how they should look at such tribulations. Our perspective changes everything. Why does God allow His people to suffer? Why is He allowing the Apostle Paul to be in prison? Now, we've all had that thought, especially when we're suffering. And so what perspective should we have? How should we look at it? And that really matters. Surely Paul was aware that the Ephesians would be tempted to ask those very same questions and feel discouraged about his circumstances. This is where our faith gets tested. It's easy to be a Christian when things are going well. In fact, I think many of us often think the Christian faith is just some set of platitudes and cliches and quaint sayings that don't really work. They're nice, pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, but we don't really believe them when the, when the test comes. We look for answers everywhere else. We're like Dr. Carson. We think the Bible can be set aside when we face some kind of practical crisis in our lives or in our families. The Word of God doesn't really work. We need professionals to help us, to tell us what's really going on. In other words, we're not really believers when it counts. Now, sometimes we suffer due to our own foolishness and sin. In fact, we often do. God is chastening us. He is teaching us. He is loving us in order to advance us and get us back on track. Even when we have the right perspective, trials, you see, are ultimately good things. I should. Re I think I said that wrong. Even then, even when we've caused the problem, when we have the right perspective, 
those trials God is using to bring about a good thing in our life, even when we're the cause of them. But only, only if we gain God's perspective on it, whereby He works the worst things to our good since we love Him and are called according to His purpose. So even when I've messed up, even when I've sinned, even when I've created all the mess in my life, in my family or wherever, if I will stop, if I, by the grace of God, will repent and turn to Him and say, Lord, what do I need to learn from this? What do I need to do next? How can I obey You in this mess that I've created? Then God will bring good out of it. But if I just keep plowing ahead and have a pity party and woe is me and why did this happen to me and it's all about me and not about Him, then nothing good will come of it. But some suffering is not because we've done something wrong. In fact, it's because we're obedient to Him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, literally made to blush. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Starting in verse 14, Paul is going to set before the Ephesian Christians and us the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. And so he wants to first ease their minds and their hearts and ours over his imprisonment. We might think that God would want somebody like Paul to have great liberty and ease. Wouldn't it be better if Paul could just go to Ephesus and be there face to face? Apparently not. On the face of it, it doesn't make sense for him to be locked up. So Paul is going to tell them and us how he looks at it. What is his attitude? What is his perspective? Well, first, I want you to notice there aren't any complaints here. If it were me, you might hear a lot of complaints. Poor me, but not from Paul. No grumbling, no, no self-pity. He doesn't say, look at all that I've done for God, and now he lets this happen to me. Please feel sorry for me. And by the way, this, of course, this imprisonment was not Paul's first difficulty. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, 
in cold and nakedness, besides these other things, what comes upon me daily. I think it's interesting that he includes this in this list of burdens. My deep concern for all the churches. No complaints. And it's way more than stoicism. Paul wasn't simply being a tough guy, resigning himself to the situation, the grin and bear it, the stiff upper lip. That's a pagan and stoic approach. Paul was doing way more than this. He was actually rejoicing in the midst of this trial. In verse 13 he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations, my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In Philippians 1-2, he writes in a very similar way when he was imprisoned, and he says this, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He wants us to see his circumstances the way God sees them, and therefore the way he sees them. He wants us to see the big picture. He wants us to look beyond the immediate circumstances. As Joseph, you remember, told his brothers after all the evil they had done to him, and they were worried now that their father was dead, that Joseph, who had the power to have them imprisoned or even executed, says to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you... You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Paul will write to Timothy from prison again and say this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer Persecution. Do you desire to live godly? If you desire it, he says, all of you that desire that will suffer persecution. You say, well, I've never, been, I've never suffered any persecution. Well, I'll let you figure that out. All who desire to live godly. Now, Paul was not alone in looking at his trials this way. Peter also wrote this. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Beloved, do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God's rest upon you, of God rest upon you, on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Paul wants the Ephesians and us to look at his imprisonment and his suffering in such a way that they see glory shining in the midst of it. There's not a hint of depression on Paul's part. Not a hint. And I get depressed if it's a cloudy day. And Paul's in, in, a, in a prison, in a dungeon, and he's not depressed. 
He didn't have any antidepressants to cheer him up. He just had the gospel. Neither is he overwhelmed by the circumstances. You know why? Because he knew God was over the circumstances. Why was Paul a prisoner? You see, he's not an ordinary prisoner. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't see himself as a Roman prisoner. But, of course, this is how Paul sees himself in every circumstance. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. He is a minister of Jesus Christ. He is a bondservant of Jesus Christ because his identity is always in Jesus Christ. He knew that he was in prison because of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. At that time, Jesus gave him a commission. Remember in Acts chapter 9, road to Damascus, here's what Jesus says to him, Go, for he is, cho- he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Paul knows that he's not in prison because of something he did wrong. He's there because he's preaching the gospel. He's suffering as a Christian because he belongs to Christ. Paul also reminded the Christians in Philippi, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, what if I I tell you this, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. You ready for the grand prize, the thing that you're going to get because you're in Christ? Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake. It's been, that's a gift. That's a blessing. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. Early on, some of the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel, and the council ordered them, beat them, ordered them not to preach anymore. But they continued. And here's what we read in Acts 5. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, discouraged and depressed. No, they departed from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And Paul wrote to the Colossians. And he said, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. We've been talking about love and how it's about sacrifice. Paul is, like Christ, sacrificing himself for the sake of the body of Christ, which is what he's called every one of us to in different ways. And so seriously, can we check our perspectives on our lives, please? Our trials, can we check it against the sufferings of the apostle? Can I look at him and look at me and say, how am I doing? Philippians 3, 7-11. But what things, Paul says, were gained to me, 
Now here's the check. Okay, here's, here's the standard. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is imitating Christ, and we should imitate both of them. (coughs) Paul was a prisoner because he was loyal to the message of the gospel. He didn't set it aside. He was a prisoner. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And since most of us were Gentiles, that means he was a prisoner for us. So Paul was in prison for preaching that the gospel of Jesus Christ was as much for the Gentiles as it was for the Jews. Acts 21 and 22 make it clear that this was the main reason for his arrest. But let's jump down to verse 13. We're going to come back in weeks to look at these verses in between, but he says in verse 13, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul's greatest desire was not to get out of prison, but to know that the Christians at Ephesus were not giving up or in any way diminished in their commitment to Christ. In fact, there is glory for them as a result of his suffering. I like to think of glory, as I mentioned earlier this morning in Sunday school, as taking something and making it bigger and better, magnifying it, amplifying it, shining the spotlight on something, calling attention to it. How does Paul's imprisonment do this for the Gentiles in the gospel? Well, the fact that Paul had been arrested for delivering the message of the gospel to them, coupled with the fact that the Gentiles had come to Christ from their pagan backgrounds, was evidence of the power of salvation. The Jews and the Romans were trying to shut Paul down because he was being effective And the gospel was having success. This alarmed them. We don't get alarmed at failures. We get alarmed at successes. Throughout church history, we've seen how the martyrdom of Christians, rather than stopping the growth of the church, has actually advanced the kingdom of God. You see, since people are willing to go to prison and even die for the faith, this proclaims the reality of and the truth of the gospel. And so, the Christians at Ephesus could see that Paul, who wasn't complaining about his circumstances, was absolutely convinced of the truth of the gospel, or else he wouldn't undergo all those sufferings. Remember how timid the apostles were during while Jesus was here? But after the resurrection, man, they changed. Now they're being beaten and walking out the door rejoicing and preaching. And now we see Paul in prison. We see, we see this radical change 
And that's one of the great evidences of the truth of the resurrection. People don't die for a myth. Like so much of life, when we have the right perspective, when we see things the way God sees them, then we not only can endure trials, we can, as James puts it, count it all joy when we fall into various trials. That doesn't mean we're walking around with a silly grin on our face. But it means there's a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory, as Peter puts it. When Christ is the center, when He is everything, then we can glory in them. Paul writes in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. What's the worst thing can happen to me? He says, I can die in this prison, and then I gain. That's the worst. But if I live on in the flesh, he says, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. If it's up to me, I just go ahead and leave this world and lay down my burdens completely and go be with Christ. But it's not all about me. God's using me, and as long as he has use for me, I'll go where he wants me to go, including prison. And so, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself to listen to the Apostle Paul today and to gain a better perspective on the trials and challenges that we face. They are not without meaning. They are not without purpose. We are called to see God's hand in them and to know that His power... His wisdom, His goodness can and does overrule for our good and for the sake of the kingdom. All of our trials, all of our difficulties, every one of them. Do you see that? The gospel is bigger than us, and so we must not lose heart. And so Paul writes in Galatians, and let us not grow weary in well-doing. I don't know about you, I grow weary sometimes in well-doing. There's a Robert Frost poem that comes to mind called After Apple Picking. He's been out picking apples day after day during the harvest and he lays down in bed and he can feel the arch of the ladder, the, the ache of the ladder and the arch of his feet. He dreams of giant apples. And he says... I've had enough of apple picking. And sometimes I've had enough of life, of the difficulties, of the challenges. But I'm calling you and I'm calling myself back to focus. That's why we came here today. That's why we're gathering here today to start another week and to look further than the apples. To look to the completion of the harvest and the delights that come from that. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to become discouraged by our own as well as by the trials of others. What you have said about sin is true. 
And as a result, this world is dark and grim. Apart from the light of the gospel, there is no hope. But thanks be to you who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. May we serve you with gladness, for you have given us hope in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Galatians 6, 7-10 Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so as we come today to this table to renew covenant with God, we remember that He has not simply called us to heaven but He has called us to sanctification, to holiness. He has called us to be like His Son, and that every detail of our lives is part of that work of bringing us to glory. We read in Romans 8, a passage we're familiar with, but I want you to hear it again and be encouraged. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Make us zealous for what is right, O God. Give us the desire and power to stand for the truth and live for the truth, regardless of the consequences. Give us the willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake, if it is necessary, and we know that inevitably it will become necessary. Give us the intellectual knowledge and ability to make a defense of the faith. But even more, give us the preparation of life to defend the gospel by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, and over all of life. Give us opportunities to account for the hope that is in us today, and boldness to seize the opportunities with gentleness and reverence. 
Let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. Bless now this Lord's Day, our rest and our delight. Bless our food and our fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You therefore, beloved, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.